in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 70, Peter is going to talk to us about Christian suffering. This is quite relevant for us today because there's a growing hostility toward Christianity, even in uh, the so-called Western world. And I got some statistics from a couple websites here. According to opendoorsusa.org, every month, 322 Christians are killed. 214 church buildings are destroyed. And 772 acts of violence are committed against Christians. And that violence, by the way, I was wondering, what does that include? Well, they, they said that includes things like beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, imprisonment, and forced marriages. The World Watch Monitor calculates that about 4,344 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons back in 2014, which, by the way, doubled from the year before that. So if you're paying attention to the news, you'll notice these things seem to be getting worse. And according to the Pew Research Center, over 75% of the world's population lives in areas with severe religious restrictions. And you'll see a, a map of the world there. Of course, uh, the, the red would, would represent extreme persecution. So places like North Korea, for example, would be there in the extreme persecution. In fact, according to the World Watch List, the top five countries with would classify themselves in that extreme persecution are number one North Korea uh, number two is Somalia three is Iraq four Syria and five Afghanistan so uh, three of those top five countries of course are in the Middle East uh, where there's targeted attacks uh, coming against Christians and so Many have had to flee. Many Christians have fled uh, from the Islamic State, which we often call ISIS, or some, sometimes the media calls them ISIL. And uh, it's said that 70% of the Christians have left Iraq. And more than 700,000 Christians have fled Syria since 2011. And uh, that, that could be even greater. I'm, I'm not sure. That's... Uh, I. That's the, I'm not sure how old that stat is, but the, here, here's what you need to understand. The believers in the first century, in Peter's day, as he's writing, they lived in the Roman Empire facing similar kinds of assaults. They faced probably more frequent and open hostility and persecution. However, in some parts of the world, there is direct persecution against believers, and it's likely in the coming years that we Christians will face an increasing hostility. I, I, it seems to me it's getting worse, even in New Zealand. And so this Bible passage here is quite relevant and helpful. It speaks to everyone who would live a godly life in the midst of a hostile, ungodly culture. And so it's important that we listen to what the Apostle Peter here tells us through the Holy Spirit. And uh, I'll just remind you, this is also coming from a martyr, someone whose faith was on the line. He put it all out there for the cause of Christ. So let's read 1 Peter three, thirteen 
1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter gives us five principles that equip us against this hostile world that we live in. Very helpful. So the key, key word there you need to take note of is these are principles God wants us to live by in this world that we're in. Number one, the Christians need a passion for goodness. You and I need a passion for goodness. Now he asked this rhetorical question in verse 13 here when he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, some people look at that and say, well, wait a minute, don't good people suffer? Humanly speaking, yes. Uh, Is it natural for good people to suffer? Well, according to this, no. The, the, The rhetorical question here has the obvious answer that it is unexpected for good people to suffer. That That's normally, generally, the case, but there is a qualification there in the text that needs to be met. See, your life determines the outcome. Being zealous, notice the word zealous there in verse 13. So being zealous there for that which is good is somewhat of an assurance for us that God's going to protect Christians from evil. It doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. The condition is is not an occasional good deed, by the way, but it's an eagerness to constantly do good. So this kind of a person, someone who has this eagerness to constantly do good, is is going to have somewhat of a going to be somewhat protected against evil. The second principle that will equip us in this hostile world, is that Christians need to be willing to suffer for both wrong and right. You and I need to be willing to suffer for both wrong and right. Notice how verse 14 starts. My Bible starts with the word, but. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, it says, you'll be blessed. So that word is marking a contrast for us. Why is it doing that? Well, Peter knew that aggressive well-doing didn't always disarm this uh, attacker or persecutor, but it does suggest a possibility to us. Notice, but even if. If is is showing that possibility. It's not a certainty, but but suggesting a possibility. So if suffering is your lot, though, the Bible says, notice, you are blessed if suffering is your lot. In other words, your suffering uh, 
how do I say it? Your, your sufferings are contributing to spiritual well-being. It's fostering a blessedness that reaches into even beyond this earthly life into the, the next, if you will, to, to heaven. So Christians shouldn't be fearful. We shouldn't be despairing. But what do we do? We, we reckon this as a privilege. I know that might sound strange, but that's what Jesus said to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, where he said, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And then verse 14 here tells us how not to respond to suffering. So this, if you're taking notes, this is a sub-point, if you will, under that principle that Christians need to be willing to suffer for both right and wrong. So we, we see here how not to respond in verse 14, that Christians should not yield to fear. Don't yield to fear. It says, have no fear of them, the, the persecutors. So Christians shouldn't allow a feeling of this fright or this terror to grip them. Uh, a good response, we can look back in church history. You look, look in your Bibles in the book of Acts and others, you'll see various Christian martyrs. Their response was not a response of fear, but one of, of trust in God. And one of, uh, one of the guys in church history you need to be aware of is Polycarp. He was a Christian martyr. He was, in fact, he was a disciple of the Apostle John and became the pastor in Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey. And uh, one day, Polycarp was hunted down by these godless persecutors. They tried every known means to get him to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. But he was unshakable in his courage. In fact, he, here, here's a quote from Polycarp. He said, Eighty-six years I have served my Lord, and he has been my truest friend. How then can I blaspheme him who shed his blood to wash away my sin? That's what he said after torturing him. They could not get him to blaspheme Jesus Christ. So at the execution scene, they, uh, as you can see here in this drawing of Polycarp's martyrdom, the soldiers began to secure him to the stake. But Polycarp actually stopped them from doing that, and he said, Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the bonfire unmoved, without the security you desire from nails. Apparently they were going to nail him to the post, so he couldn't move. And so he prayed. As they were lighting the fire, he was praying to God, and his body was eventually reduced to ashes. His soul went to be home with Jesus Christ. And there, I, I love that, well, it's, it's sad, but at the same time, I love the courage that God gives by His grace to these Christian martyrs. It helps, hopefully helps give us a little bit of a strong backbone as we suffer. And there is a desperate need today for men like Polycarp, fearless men who doing exactly what Peter talks about here. Have no fear of them. Polycarp had no fear of them. He had no fear of, of a physical death. He was willing to stand for Christ no matter what the cost. He feared God 
didn't fear the people. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is one whom we must fear, but people we must not. There's a second point that Peter gives us here in in regard to this principle of being willing to suffer for both right and wrong. And notice verse 14 tells us that Christians should not be troubled. Don't be troubled, it says in verse 14. That word troubled means to shake up, to agitate. It's it's what you might do with a glass of water. Uh, If you put something in, in water and you need that to be dissolved in the water. You, you, you might stir it. You might shake it. That's the idea here. It's an agitation. It's, it's a confusion. And Peter's saying, no. <laughs> Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be agitated. Don't be confused. Don't, don't be stirred up in your soul by what they're trying to do to you. Instead, what should we do? Well, the third principle that is going to equip us to live in this hostile world is that Christians need Christ to be supreme in their lives. We need Christ to be supreme in our lives. Verse 15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ. Honor Christ. That is a command, by the way, the only command in this text. Some people think uh, the, the command comes later when it talks about apologetics. No, actually, apologetics is just telling us how to obey the command. So really, the command here is to honor Christ. That is the supreme part of this text, the central part of the text. It it means to treat him as holy. In fact, you see the word holy there. So honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, he's to be set apart. or He is unique. He is to be enshrined as an object of supreme reverence. Christ needs to be set apart above all your other allegiances in life. After all, think about it, honor is here a command. It's not an option. Now notice where Christ is to be honored. Christ is to be honored in our hearts. That phrase, by the way, is is showing something specific, very specific. The inner sanctuary of your heart is where Christ is to be enthroned, is to be honored, to be exalted, to be worshipped as sovereign king of this universe. So his supremacy must begin here in our inner being. How is Christ to be honored? Notice he is to be honored as the Holy Lord. Now why is that important? Because When Christ is Lord or Master, then Christians are going to have this grace here and this strength to stand firm in the midst of suffering. See, when you recognize there is one greater whom I worship, whom I serve, then then all the other stuff that happens in our life is subservient to Him. So what should be the Christian's response to suffering? We're to honor Christ as Lord, the, the one who is the Holy One. And I like this Christian's response. It might give you an idea of, of how someone might honor Christ in their heart. And, and it shows in the life, by the way. 
uh, it's an interesting story. Years ago, there was a wicked king who commanded a Christian to recant. He commanded him to give up Christ, recant this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If you don't, I will banish you, he said. The Christian said, you cannot banish me from Christ. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The king said, well, then I'll confiscate all your property. The king was very angry. My treasures are laid up in heaven. You cannot touch them, the Christian replied. I will kill you, the king shouted with even greater anger. But the Christian quietly answered, I have been dead in Christ to this world for 40 years. My life is hid with Christ in God. You cannot touch it. The king turned to the members of his court and he said in absolute disgust, what can you do with such a fanatic? Nothing is the answer, right? Nothing. Because that Christian was honoring Christ, the Lord, as holy in his heart. And so the age in which we live today demands this kind of a response. We need Christians who are are willing to live with fanatical zeal for Christ. Sadly, the world's destroying itself. They need Christ. Christ is their only hope. But if the world's to hear about Him, we, we need Christians who are wholly consecrated to God. We also need Christians who, who recognize Christ is their supreme ambition. They want to make Christ known. Do you? I hope you do. Peter doesn't stop there. He tells us how, really, how to, some ways in to, to obey this command of making uh, Christ supreme in our lives. And so he gives us a fourth principle that will equip us in this world. He says Christians need to always be ready to defend the faith. How do you honor Christ? You, you can honor Christ by defending him by defending his gospel, by defending his doctrine. So look, look what it says here. At the end of verse 15, it says, we're to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you always need to be prepared, it says. Never go unprepared. Never be unwilling. Don't be timid in your response to those who question the faith. So the only way you're going to be able to do that is then your faith needs to be real. It needs to be something personal. It needs to be a first-hand discovery, not just something you read about, not just something your parents tried to pass down to you. It'll never be real if that's the case. Now, you say, well, what does this look like? Well, fill in the blank. I'll put this on the screen here for you. Christianity is true because... What's your answer? Don't, don't, don't answer out loud. So, so if someone is, is asking you uh, about your faith, that answer there is going to determine your apologetic. How you fill in the blank there is your apologetic. So the word apologetics, I'm not going to assume everyone knows, okay? 
But it, it, it's coming from the, a Greek word here in the text, apologia, is how you say it in Greek. And we get the English word apologetics from that. And it's, it's described here in the English text as make a defense. Make a defense. So there's a lot of confusion over this. And uh, one of the reasons for the confusion and the controversy over Christian apologetics is partly, I think, because this gets ripped out of context. The context is all about suffering. <laughs> Have you ever thought about apologetics context being suffering? It is. That's what it's about. In fact, Peter here, he's, he, he tells us we're to have this good conscience, right? Uh, verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's the context. It's Christian suffering. So we need to bear that in mind when we think about apologetics. And and so let me just give you a few subpoints here that I hope will be helpful, coming mostly from the text here that will explain what is apologetics. Number one, apologetics is a mandate for all Christians. It's not just, and I say that because there are some people who think that apologetics is just for the, you know, the, the really intellectually astute dude who can argue well. This is the philosophically trained guy who has a Ph.D. in philosophy or, or, or maybe even some pastors or professors or biblical scholars or the so-called professional apologist. You know, it's, they're, they're the ones that are supposed to do this, not just not me. You know, I'm just kind of the, the average Christian. This isn't for me to do, right? Wrong. <laughs> who is Peter writing to here? This whole book is written to Christians. It's not written to professional apologists. So please think of this as, this is your duty. This is one of the ways God wants you to honor Christ. Number two, what is apologetics? It's directed toward unbelievers. And you do this whenever and whoever. doesn't matter. You, you can do it informally or formally. You can do it inside the Christian church or outside the Christian church. And it's not just for atheists or the agnostics in some kind of a formal debate, you know, might be done at a university. Okay? There, there is a place for that. Okay? If God should call you to do that and go to the university and, 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 uh, and debate an atheist over the gospel, then... So be it. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. Sometimes Christians only think of apologetics in that setting. Okay, The setting can be anything. You can do this in your house. You can do this within the church. You can do this at a cafe. You can do it standing under the trees outside. Okay, It doesn't matter where. All right? it, it's, and it's directed toward all unbelievers whenever and whoever, informally and formally. But sadly, though, we do need to be aware, it seems though on a whole the church is kind of letting their guard down, and it really needs to wake up, because the Bible says 
in 1 John 4, 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We're, we're to test them. Don't just turn your brains off. We, we tend to do that sometimes. Kind of turn our brains off and then just kind of soak everything in. But uh, Paul told it, Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard it. It's very important that we do that. So what is apologetics? Number three, apologetics is grounded in the Old Testament and is inseparably connected to the gospel. It is not scriptureless human reasoning. It's, in other words, it's not just human philosophy or wisdom. I say that because that's the way some people, even Christ, the professional Christian apologists, that's the way they approach this. They don't want to use the scripture when they are making a defense of the faith. But uh, that, is, that is, shouldn't be the case. In fact, Peter even quotes here from Isaiah chapter 8. You can look at your cross-reference in your Bible. He quotes Isaiah chapter 8. So uh, the apostles and Jesus were not afraid to use the Old Testament as they were making a defense of the faith. So neither should we. And notice the text says, it mentions this hope in us. What is this hope in you? Well, literally, it's the the gospel, the good news. See, we're not to reason toward the scriptures. We're to reason from the scriptures. Okay, big difference in philosophy there. Uh, So I don't know what your particular apologetic is, but... Some, some think, I'm going to reason people toward the Scriptures. No, I'm, may, may I suggest, no, this is more than a suggestion. The Scripture tells us to reason from the Scriptures. So apologetics is not just a defense, in other words. It's actually you are promoting the good news of Jesus Christ. So our, our, our apologetic is to be from Scripture, with Scripture. It's not to be independent of Scripture. In fact, Even the Apostle Paul, when he goes into Athens, Greece, and he's up there on that little, uh, that that hill there in Athens, and he's arguing with these philosophers, and he's he's reasoning with them. Acts 17, verse 2 says that Paul reasoned from the Scriptures. From the Scriptures. That's a good, sorry, that's a good apologetic. So our our apologetic is, is, uh, can be a negative thing, but it's also positive. In other words, it's, it's negative in the sense you're, de- you're, you're giving a defense of the gospel, but you're also promoting the gospel at the same time. Well, let's move on to the fourth principle that will equip us in this hostile world. We see here that apologetic, or sorry, no, that's this, uh, sorry, number four. I'm getting ahead of myself. Number four, what is apologetics? It's, it's consistently Christ-ruled one. We already, saw, we already saw the command is to honor Christ. The Lord is holy. Honor is, there, is, is a verb, the only verb there. It's a command telling us to set Christ apart as Lord. He's master. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we turn everything over to him. We live only to please him. We live only to glorify him. It means to fear displeasing Christ rather than 
fearing what people might think of us or what they might say or, or do to us. So our defense should be done in a way that's consistently reflecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's, he's the source. In other words, he's not just the source, but the starting point. He's, he is everything. The Alpha and Omega and everything in between. He's the Lord. So apologetics should be a, a consistently Christ-ruled one. But number five, apologetics is also connected with a godly life. Right? It's not just what you say, it's who you are. So Peter, in verse 16, he, he says, we're to have this good conscience. Good conscience. And notice the end of verse 15, you, you did do this apologetics business, if you will, with gentleness and respect. So a godly life here includes gentleness and respect and a good conscience, all three. What's gentleness? That's, uh, is it uh, seeking to overpower your opponent with your amazing wisdom? Well, that's what some people think, right? You, you, you get the impression that's, that's their, how they do apologetics. No, gentleness is not just overpowering people with your words. It's, you need to recognize that you're a witness. You're not the prosecuting attorney. Right? <laughs> right? Sometimes we come across as like we are the prosecuting attorney. No, you're just a witness for Christ. Uh, gentleness, by the way, is not weakness. Not weakness. It doesn't mean you're like a doormat and everyone gets to step on you and spit on you and so forth. It's not an attitude of arrogant antagonism. And it is not a haughty superiority. Those are, you wonder, the way people act sometimes. They, because they're not being gentle, you would think that is how you're supposed to do apologetics. No, Peter says you're to be gentle he says you're also to do your apologetics with respect. So let's be clear. Respect is not fear of men that is producing some sort of timidity within us. But reverence is it's because of the solemnity, if you will, of the subject, particularly Christ. Uh, and so we, we, we come to this recognizing we have a great subject that needs to be addressed. And so there, there comes a caution with that, lest we say something we regret. Uh, Peter knows something about that, doesn't he? How often did he insert his foot in his mouth? <laughs> How often do we say things like Peter, things we, ooh, later on we're like, oh, I regretted saying that, oh wasn't respectful it might be true right you can say true things in a disrespectful way can't you so why is this important because you don't want to bring disrepute on god and his truth we bring disrepute on christ and his cause by how we say things Oh, well, let's move on. Number six. We, we see here that apologetics has an impact on opponents. It has an impact on opponents. Because notice there's that phrase in verse 16 where it says, so that, 
when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Oh, they may not like it, but a godly response brings shame. And those words, so that, are introducing this unexpected result here of making a defense. Although the antagonist will not always be silenced, okay, notice Peter didn't say they're going to be, they're going to stop persecuting you just because you're being godly. Sometimes they're, they're going to keep going. But in the process, notice Peter says, something will be accomplished. They will be put to shame. In other words, what Peter's saying is they're going to be humiliated by seeing Christ in you. It's because of your good behavior in Christ. And then Peter gives his last principle here that will equip us to live in this hostile culture. And he says, Christians need a pure conscience. We need a pure conscience. And by the way, again, that's showing us, it's a participle here, showing us how to obey the command. How do we honor Christ? We're to have do that. We're to honor Christ by having a good conscience. And the, the idea here is this is, you're morally right in your word, in your deeds, and your attitude. And this is important because it allows us to face our opponents without fear, to be able to effectively defend the faith. Let me illustrate it this way, by using a skylight. There's, of course, there's a big skylight up there, and there's a picture of one on the screen. What, what is the purpose of a skylight? Well, most people want skylights to let light in in, in, in dark places, and it happens... So what happens if you neglect to keep the skylight clear and you spray paint it or let mold and moss grow on it? Right? You know what happens, of course. The room's going to go dark. The conscience is kind of like a a skylight that's been neglected and, and stuff is growing on it and it's getting darker and darker. It's, it's not producing its own light, of course. But what does the skylight do? It lets the light through. And so because of that, we we need to keep our conscience clear or what's going to happen. Eventually, that moral light, if you will, God's light that's supposed to shine through us grows darker and dimmer over time. So what am I trying to say? Apologetics is not just about what you say. You can say all the right things, but you need to understand apologetics is also how you live. It's something that's, if if you will, it's holistic. It's a whole lifestyle. It's not just an intellectual exercise. If it was, why else would would these persecutors be asking you about the hope in you? Well, Peter ends with some, I would consider, some helpful news here. He really answers this question, uh, what assurance does God give to those who suffer? Because in verse 17, he, he starts by saying, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice that phrase, it is better. It is better, that phrase there, is contrasting between two conditions of suffering. 
See, uh, neither kind of suffering, of course, is, is very pleasant. Uh, most people don't want to suffer, but there is a significant difference uh, between suffering for doing something good and then suffering for your sin. Big difference. So, of course, again, neither one is, is pleasant. But notice it is better here because if you suffer for doing well, it's, it, this is good because you're in fellowship with Christ. You're, you're understanding more of His sufferings. And second is better because it, it may silence the opponent. Or better yet, uh, it actually might change their mind in regard to their sin. It might change their mind in regard to your Christ. But the Bible there in verse 17 also uses the word if. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. So the word if there shows us that such suffering is unlikely, at least in our modern culture in the West, that's the way it is. That might change. But when this kind of suffering does happen here, notice we can be encouraged by this fact here that it's not just some blind, random chance happening to us. It is God's will. (laughs) Which is good news, because God is sovereign. And He permits suffering in our lives. Why does God do what He does? He always does it for two reasons. God does what He does for His glory and your good. I, I can't tell you all, all that's involved in that, but he's, He permits suffering for our good. And so someone who is committed, a committed Christian, can then rest on truths in Scripture like Romans 8.28. That's hard to deal with when you're going through suffering. But it is a helpful truth, because it says we know that for those who love God in all or who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose now, his purpose and his will in our suffering is mentioned in the next verse of course he is conforming us into the image of Christ and sometimes that requires suffering to do that so clearly suffering here for well-doing is vastly better than suffering for our evil-doing. And so if believers suffer because of their sin, guess what? I don't have much good news for you there. There's not much merit when you suffer for your sin. And so he needs to be ashamed if, if we're sinning. And we need to seek God's forgiveness if we're suffering because of our sin. But my friend, adversity is a reality. And suffering is a spiritual privilege for a believer. Especially, it's helpful to recognize a sovereign God in the midst of this. And the sovereign God who reigns supreme over all of His creation is accomplishing His purposes. That's good news. That is good news. So when you realize that God is sovereign, then, at least for me, it's it's been able to help me to to accept the suffering that comes my way. It helps me to understand it as God's plan. So my friends, 
Let's take heed to what our Lord Jesus Christ said in His preaching in Matthew chapter 5. Here's what He said. It's on the screen here for you. Matthew 5, verse 10, He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. May God enable us to understand these five principles that will enable us to live in this hostile world and to look for the reward in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us these precious words. We ask that you would open our spiritual eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, from this text. May we not just see them, but may we believe them, may we understand them, may we apply them in our lives. We are standing on the shoulders of so many other people who have gone before us. People like the Apostle Peter, who put these truths into practice in his own life. So may these not just be things we know, may if that time should come, when it comes, may we honor Christ in our hearts by always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for that reason, for the hope that is in us. May we honor Christ by having a good conscience, having Him totally set apart as holy, unique, distinct, is totally supreme. May our whole allegiance be to Him and to Him alone. May we not fear men, what they can do to our bodies or to our minds. But may the world around us see Christ. May we be that, that, like that skylight. May we keep it a, a clean and pure to allow the light of the world to shine through us. May we, in our defense, as we're making a defense of this hope in us, may we do it with gentleness and respect, having a clear conscience. That is a hard ask. <laughs> and it would be impossible without your grace, so we... We pray you would do this great work in us for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.